As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, we die without your word. And so I pray that as we read it and think together that it will bring life to us and joy to us. So please help us now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. I want to read verses 1 through 11. John, chapter 2, please. Got it? Okay, here we go. John chapter 2, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples uh, believed in him. And then we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, what do we make of this? Uh, John tells us that this is the first sign. So it has to be important. It was the first one. You think of all the ones that he'd lay out first, it would be a significant one. One would tell us a great deal. And uh, it's a sign. So it's pointing away from itself. So what Jesus did here is, in essence, Pointing away from itself. In fact, as you probably know, John has uh, organized his writing, his gospel, around various signs. Uh, Miracles, healing miracles. Um, Feeding miracle, feeding 5,000. Walking on water, uh, a blind man seeing, a man being raised from the dead. And these signs are to point to something. And each one of them has a has a lesson for us. How Jesus heals his compassion, his power to, to deal with the misery that sin causes these diseases. And, and Jesus has power over them and can heal and desires to heal. And so that tells us a great deal right Right there. He feeds so many and, and that points away from itself. So Jesus can say, I'm the bread of life. He walks in water so he can say, don't be afraid. I'm always with you. You can't be anywhere that I'm not. And, and so there he is with them uh, on that front. He, 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 he heals a blind man so he can see. And he says, I'm the light of the world. And so even that miracle points away from itself to Jesus and, and, and who he is. He raises Lazarus from the dead so he can say, I'm the resurrection and the life. And, and, and so you see, so this is a sign 
and it's to point away from itself so we can see something about, about, about Jesus. But you know, he, he just turns water into wine, and, and you wonder, well, that doesn't seem like all the others. It doesn't seem like a miracle of healing or these, the great power. No, it, it does show some compassion, if you will, for this wedding party, and it shows his power over nature that he can take water and turn it into wine, the best wine, so that it was taste tested. It would proven to be aged wine, even though a second ago it was just water. Uh, it's uh, miraculous. But you wonder, one author put it like this, it seems like Jesus is just solving a catering disaster. And is it really fitting to be this this sign, but, but it must be, because, because John doesn't mess around. Uh, John writes at the end of his gospel that he's written what he's written. He says in chapter 20, verse 30, that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his, in his name. And, and that's exactly what happened. With this sign, you'll notice back in chapter 2, verse 11, says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so this sign is to fit John's purpose. And we see it fit his purpose with his disciples, Jesus's, because they saw his glory through this. And, and they and they believed. Um, of all the things that, that John could have chosen, he chose this first. In fact, in another place, the end of his gospel, he says there's so many things Jesus did, libraries couldn't fill all of them. And so he asked the question, why this one? <laughs> of seven, why, why turning water into wine? At a wedding. It's important to us too because remember what Simeon said when he saw the baby Jesus. That we encounter Jesus, our hearts are revealed. The question, what does this reveal about our hearts? When we encounter Jesus at this wedding. Well, the situation is pretty clear. I mean, it's a wedding. Uh, could have been, we don't know. Could have been a friend, relative of Jesus' family. Jesus' mom was there. Mary was there. Jesus was invited, and the disciples that he had with him were invited to come uh, as well. We know in the days of Jesus, weddings were big deals. I mean, they're big deals today often, but really big deals in the days of Jesus. Um, so much so that often a wedding could last for a week. And it said very much about the families, the groom's family particularly. He was responsible, the groom was, for, for the feast. He was responsible for the food and particularly for the wine because that was a, a symbol of, of joy. And this was to be the most joyous of occasions. And so you can only imagine that the groom would be very careful to make sure there's enough food, there's enough wine, uh, to make this a festive occasion, uh, because it was a culture in which if you slipped up, especially socially, especially in the context of the community, there could be great shame involved 
great embarrassment, uh, such that we probably can't comprehend really. Oh, if, if you had gave a big party and you ran out of food, you might feel bad about that. But, but this really was significant to show your love for your wife, to show your love for the community, you would make certain that this would be a great, joyful, festive occasion. So much so that you'd have a, a master of the feast, a master of ceremonies kind of person, somebody to manage the whole thing so that you'd make sure that everyone would have a great, a great time. So that at the end of the day, they would say this groom loves his bride and loves this uh, community. But then the unthinkable happens. They run out of joy. I mean, they run out of wine. But that was the point of it, you see. When you run out of wine, it's a symbol. Uh, the psalmist says wine gladdens the heart. Uh, that's the sense of it. That's how they understood it. Uh, and so we ran out of, out of joy when, when the wine uh, was, was gone. And so, so, so Mary comes to Jesus and, they, and she says to him, uh, they don't have any, any, any wine. And you wonder what she was thinking at that point about, about Jesus. Was she thinking that he could somehow do a miracle so that they would have more wine? We don't know exactly what she was thinking. She was thinking that he would do something because after all the exchange with Jesus, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And so there was something, something there. It's just hard to imagine she thought that he was going to do what he did. I mean, I don't think when... Jesus was home and with his family that Mary would be cooking dinner and say to James, hey, could you go borrow a cup of sugar from the neighbors? Oh, better yet. Hey, Jesus, you know, could you just make some? I don't think that's how it happened around the house. This was the first sign, the first miracle. So, so we, don't, we don't know what she, was, what she was really expecting. It could simply be that Jesus was the eldest. It could simply be that Jesus... That the Joseph, by this time, he's out of the picture. Perhaps he's died. That she simply was dependent upon her eldest firstborn, her eldest son. And so she went to him, though she must have known something. Because she knew who he was. But then Jesus responds in, in an abrupt kind of, I don't know, uncomfortable kind of way. He just says, woman. He didn't say, Mom. And while we suspect Jesus isn't being disrespectful here because he wouldn't be, it's not that he's irritable because Jesus didn't get irritable. I mean, even when he was being beaten, he didn't, he didn't get angry, he didn't, didn't yell at them. Uh, so he, he, it's not that. But there's something happening here, some, some distance. And then he says, what does this have to do with me? When I find difficult phrases in the scripture, I often go to uh, a man in the New Testament, at least by the name of Don Carson, D.A. Carson. He's a New Testament scholar, and uh, I rely on him uh, uh, much. He writes this about this expression. He says, we must not avoid the conclusion that Jesus, by rebuking his mother, however courteously, declares... At the beginning of his ministry, his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. What Carson says is, is that we, we need to see 
what Jesus is doing is distancing himself from his mom. He's distancing himself by any human advice. Any human agenda. He's embarked on his ministry. The purpose of his coming. His only lodestar is his heavenly father's will. In other words, what Jesus does is only what his father desires for him to do. Now that he had entered into the purpose of his coming, everything, even family ties, had to be subordinated to his divine mission. She, Mary, could no longer view him as other mothers viewed their sons. She must no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood. It's a remarkable fact that everywhere Mary appears during the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is at pains to establish distance between them. You remember the occasions? One occasion, uh, 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 people said, hey, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside. And what did Jesus say? He said, no, 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 no. My mother and my brothers and my sisters are those who do the will of my heavenly father. Another woman came to him and said, blessed is the, is the, is the womb who bore you. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Blessed are those who do the will of my father. That's what Carson's referring to here. This is not callousness on Jesus' part. On the cross, he makes provisions for Mary's future. But she, like every other person, must come to him as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Neither she nor anyone else dare presume to approach him on an inside track. For no one could this lesson have been more difficult than for Jesus' mother. Perhaps that was part of the sword that would pierce her soul. For this, we should honor her more. You get the point. Jesus is saying, I'm not here to do your bidding. Now he does something, but I'm not here to do your bidding. He makes certain that everyone's aware of that this is of his own volition. This is part of his mission from his heavenly father, whatever else it is. So Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? And then he says something that sounds like a non sequitur. He says, my hour has not yet come. (laughs) Now, when that expression is used in the gospel of John, my hour has not yet come. It's referring to Jesus' death. If you read through the gospel of John, you'll find from time to time a little expressions like they tried to arrest him, to seize him, but they couldn't. For his hour had not yet come. But then in John chapter 12, which leads us into the passion narratives, we read this expression, and bells and whistles should go off in our heads by that point, because the expression is Jesus saying, my hour has come. And we know exactly what that means when we read on, because we read on, what it means is that his hour to die has come. So here's the exchange between Jesus and Mary. Mary says, I have no wine. Uh, Jesus says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? It's not time yet for me to die. <laughs> and you go, okay, I'm um, following this. Uh, what really does it mean? How does, what does this really re- reveal of Jesus' glory? What enables us then to believe? Well, let me ask you this. What was Jesus seeing? 
What was Jesus? He was, he was at a wedding, a, a feast, a celebration of joy. Yet, yet the joy ran out because the wine ran out, which would ruin the feast, shame the groom, and destroy all the joy. And this causes Jesus to think about his own death. Do you see it? Maybe this will help. So, Jesus looks over and sees these stone uh, water jars. And they were there, verse 6 tells us, for the Jewish rites of purification. So these big water jars weren't there for drinking water. They were there, in a sense, for bathing, for cleansing. You know, you read through the Old Testament, even the days of Jesus, that it was necessary, if a person was going to approach God in any way, uh, to be ceremonially cleansed, symbolically cleansed. Often water would be used, and they would bathe in particular ways. Could be their hands, could be their head, whatever it was. And so these big jars would be uh, placed, and you can see they were really big. They would contain 20 or 30 gallons uh, uh, each. Now, why cleansing? Oh, why was it necessary to approach God when approaching God to be cleansed? Well, because of sin, you see. And, and thus, this water symbolically would purify, or at least give the impression of purifying. It would say, I want to be purified. I know I'm a sinner. And in order for me to come to God, I need to be pure. And so here I take this water. So I acknowledge my sin and, and this water to acknowledge God's cleansing of of me, And we realize this sin, don't we? We don't have to believe with this. We realize our sin. We see it in the world. Various ways with injustice. Cruelty, brutality, racism. We see it in our own lives. Our selfishness, our pride. Our hurting one another. We see it. And you see, in seeing that, we should realize this is really our rebellion against God. We've decided to go our own way and not, and not his way. And, and so sin, and if we're honest, we realize that God is holy. Therefore, we need to be, we need to be cleansed. And what we do see about sin is it sucks all the joy out of real life. When you think about sin and its effects on the world, in the world, and on, on us, what it does is it, it realizes there's no hope, there's no real joy anymore. It just zaps us of that. That's what's happening. Then in the midst of this wedding, the wine goes. Jesus sees that. And the question then, how can joy ever be restored? So, the water. Fill up the jars. They do that. Once filled, Jesus says, take some out. And they take it out. The servants do. It's always interesting to see the parentheses. You, you know that could have been left out, but it's significant. The servants knew. You know, the servants always know. The ones that you would never expect to know, the servants know. This is kind of a quiet thing. Because the master of the feast gets this wine, tastes it, and says, this is the best wine ever. I don't know how it got here. 
We were out of it a minute ago, but the servants knew. The, the, the lower class in the day, if you will, knew. The meek ones. So he takes it to the, the, to the bridegroom who's in charge of everything. And no doubt at this point, uh, utterly, utterly distraught because there's no wine. And he drinks this wine and it saves the day. And the master of the feast says, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. It's almost like not only is the feast saved But you're a master at this. Nobody else could do anything like this. Who would have thought to do this? Usually we serve the good wine first, and then when everybody gets a little used to it, then we serve the bad wine. (laughs) But you've kept this to the very end. What a great idea. That shows how great and how wise you are, he says to 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 this bridegroom. And Jesus says, ah. My death will bring that joy. That's why I'm thinking about it. That's why I'm thinking about it. That's why I'm thinking about my death at this point in time. Because all the joy has gone. Because the wine's gone. So what am I going to do? Why am I here? I'm here to restore real joy. And he's going to do that, you see, by dealing with our sin. He's going to do that by bringing cleansing, by purifying us from our sin. You see, Jesus didn't come to be a good example. Now he is, but he didn't come for that purpose to be a good example because we need more than a good example. Could you imagine if the message of the gospel was that Jesus is our example and if we live up to him, then God will accept us. That's really bad news. That's impossible. That's crushing. Who can be Jesus? But at this moment in time, he knew why he had come. He knew why he had come. He had come to bring cleansing. And he knew he would bring cleansing only by dying when his hour would come. But through his death, we'd bring joy. Through his death, we'd bring cleansing. That's why, that's why he came. They say, well, why did he have to die? Well, he died as our substitute. Well, why did he have to do that? Why, why couldn't God simply, simply forgive us? And, and, and you know, we all know that any time forgiveness happens or any time someone sins against someone, there's always a cost. There's always a cost of forgiveness. Uh, as I was studying one, author used this illustration. He said, suppose that um, you had a lamp in your house and it was worth about $100. And someone came in, a friend, came in and knocked it over and broke it. What would you do? Well, one of two things. Either your friend would give you 100 bucks and incur the cost of the lamp. Or You would forgive your friend and your friend wouldn't give you any money and you would go out and spend your own money to replace the lamp. Either way, it's costing somebody a hundred dollars to forgive your friend means you incur the cost. Always when forgiveness happens, 
the forgiver incurs the cost. A more pertinent application, I suppose, this author went on as I was reading. He said, let's say someone's ruins your your reputation. What happens then? Well, you can make the person who's ruined your reputation pay by ruining theirs. An eye for an eye. You can go out and ruin their reputation. Or you could forgive. But when you forgive, you incur the cost of a ruined reputation. There'll be people who no longer look at you the same. There'll be people um, with whom you've lost face, if you will. And there'll be people who look down upon you and perhaps criticize you. That's the cost of forgiving in that circumstance. We've sinned against God. We've sinned against each other. How can a holy God just sort of say, well, that's all right, we'll just forget about all that. Well, well, then we pay the cost of it. We pay the cost of the misery. We pay the cost of the hell that is ultimate for us. Jesus said, no, 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 no. By my death, I'll be your substitute. By my death, I'll take that, that cost. I'll pay the debt. And when I pay the debt, all who trust in me, all who believe in me, will be forgiven the debt. That's why I've come. What destroys joy, really, eternally, in the lives of human beings? Sin. And Jesus says, all right, I'll take it. And I'll restore the joy. Oh, in our confession this morning, there was a quote from a little stealing a bit of Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Well, we could have said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. That would have been just fine. But it's better to say, as David did, restore the joy of your salvation. That is the salvation that you've brought, bought for me. Restore it and that's what Jesus, what Jesus does. He, he purifies. You know, often we use as an assurance of our forgiveness of sins. Uh, if I would have been thinking ahead, that's the one we would have used today, but I wasn't. And uh, when I put the bulletin together. But First John chapter 5, I'm sorry, First John chapter 1 verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses, with some translations, purifies us from all sin. Same word. So Jesus is saying, you don't need any purification rites. You don't need any more water. You don't need any more of that. You just need my blood. My blood will do it. My blood will satisfy for all of your sins. And perhaps this too, uh, Jesus thinking he's at a wedding. Rather tongue in cheek. Uh, one commentator said this. He says, so what do single people think about when they're at a wedding? Well, oftentimes, not always, 
but oftentimes their own wedding. Uh, that's why we throw the bouquet and the garter thing and all of that, because we're thinking about other people's weddings as well. And again, rather tongue-in-cheek, he says, so what's Jesus thinking about when he's at a wedding? He's thinking about his wedding. Clearly he is. He's thinking about his wedding. He's thinking about the bride. He's thinking about his people. He's thinking, I'm the groom here. I'm responsible for joy. I'm responsible for the feast. And he's saying, "Uh, my bride will never have to worry. I'll always supply. There'll always, always be enough, you see. I mean, that Jesus knew himself to be the bridegroom of his people uh, was obvious. In fact, John the Baptist knew it. If you flip over a page from John 2 to John 3, verse 26, um, verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive um, even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must de- decrease. John's saying, hey, listen, I'm just the best man here. He's the bridegroom. He really is. Jesus would speak like this even of himself. Matthew in chapter 9, for instance. Jesus, I'm sorry, I'm in the Gospel of Mark. That's the wrong one. Matthew chapter 9. In verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And they'll, then they will fast. So Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom here. But then notice this, he puts it like this. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. Jesus always related his being the bridegroom with wine with this joy, this new life that he would, that he would bring. Not only that, but don't you wonder, as Jesus was at this wedding and perhaps other weddings, he, he knew why there were weddings, because he knew why marriage was. If you go to one of the weddings at Grace, um, any of us who officiating the wedding will no doubt speak to Ephesians in chapter 5. Because there, the apostle is talking about marriage between a man and a woman, But he says, no, I'm really talking about Christ and the church. Why do we have marriage? We have marriage ultimately so that we can understand better the relationship between Christ and the church. And so Jesus is there at a wedding going, this is all about me. 
I, I'm the bridegroom. My church is the bride. This exists, this relationship between this man and this woman exists so that people will know about me, that they'll know about how much I love my bride, how much I love the church so much that I'm willing to give myself for her. And you know, one of the great, one of the great uh, traditions in weddings, historically even, and, 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 and even across the world, is the delight of the groom and his bride on the wedding day. We, we see it in our tradition. Uh, we, we see it, uh, if you go back, not too many years, but even still today, sometimes there was a tradition that the groom wouldn't see the bride that day until she walked down the aisle. The anticipation would build. And the bride would spend portion of that day in a new dress with the best jewelry cosmetic every all of her friends would be coming around her to make sure that she would look beautiful and I, i've seen big strong men get weak in the knees as we're standing up here and the doors open i always say that more grooms cry at weddings than brides it's just true i've done 150 or more weddings and it's just true. Now, part of it is the fact that she's been thinking about this since she was three. And it's now just dawning on him that he's getting married. And it kind of floods him with emotion. But very often, I see it as she walks down. Because he sees his bride in all her glory. He sees his bride as beautiful. As he could ever imagine her being. And there he is. Now do you realize. That's how Jesus sees us. He sees us. As more beautiful. Than we could ever imagine. Spotless. And without blemish. In fact, this passage in Zephaniah that we've considered recently at a couple of different funerals even. Is one that is a bride-bridegroom type passage. Chapter 4, chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. Uh, He will exalt over you with loud singing. I mean, that's the sense of it, you see, when he sees us. And I know that's almost unimaginable. And some days it's completely unimaginable for me. I have to work it up. I have to, I have to, I have to really take responsibility for joy. I have to really take responsibility that I'm going to understand myself and see myself really the way the Lord Jesus sees me as his bride. And, and that's again, many days impossible. Until I ask him, help me to see it. Restore the joy of your salvation. Here's some passages to live on. Isaiah chapter 25, which Jill read earlier. 
is one of the passages I, I live on. Verse 6. On this mountain of the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. He's talking about a wedding feast. A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food uh, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he'll swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Anytime the salvation of the Lord is spoken of, it's always accompanied by rejoicing. It's always accompanied, accompanied by, by joy. And, and, and you might not feel it right now in the midst of your life. But here's, here's how we're to get there. We're to get there by meditating upon Jesus, what he's done to make us his bride and to realize this day really is coming, to know that it really is. And then Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. And everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. And they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. If any of you sojourned in charismatic circles in the 70s, you sang this. All right. If you can picture me in those circles, I sang this. Then Isaiah chapter... 55 and verse 10. This is a passage we read uh, all the time, but it's really necessary to connect all the dots. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not water and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So my word Uh, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me uh, empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. Now, what's the thing for which God sends his word? Notice verse 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. See, in the midst of whatever we're going through, we need to see through it to see the purpose for which God has sent it. And the purpose for which he sends his word in every situation is so that ultimately we may go out in joy and be led forth in peace. Then Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 10. 
Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, and over the young flock of the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice and dance, and young men and the old uh, shall be merry. And I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. That's what the disciples of Jesus saw. Joy. Restored. By Jesus. I'll end with this. One author, um, preacher of some note of the last generation, Edmund Clowney, some of you may be familiar with him, put it like this, describing Jesus at the wedding. He said, Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow, so that today you and I, who believe in him, can sit amidst all the world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow, so that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst all the world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. Let's pray. Father, May it be true. May you enable us to so see the glory of Jesus and believe in him that even in the midst of present sorrow we may sip the coming joy. And this I pray. In Jesus' name.